Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state agencies in Mississippi are facing another round of budget cuts announced by Governor Phil Bryant. Community colleges got cut by $4.3 million. We'll talk to the executive director of the Community College Board, Andrea Mayfield, live in studio. Then ITT Tech closes all of its branches, including one in Madison. We'll take a look at why. We do see it as a, as a positive development overall for making sure that schools that are taking advantage of students are no longer allowed to just operate with impunity. Later, teaching teachers to teach civil rights in Mississippi and working to make a difference as a teacher in the Mississippi Delta in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Phil Bryant is ordering budget cuts for state agencies to cover a $57 million accounting error. The cuts to the state's $6 billion budget comes less than two months into the fiscal year, which started July 1st. Money also was pulled last fiscal year from the state's rainy day fund and from state savings. The Community College Board, which oversees 15 schools across the state, was given a $4.3 million cut in the latest round. And with us this morning is Andrea Mayfield. She's executive director of the Community College Board. Welcome. Thanks for being here, Andrea. Thank you, Karen. Everybody has to work within a budget. What do these latest cuts mean to community colleges? Well, certainly any reduction is a financial blow to the community college and to the system as a whole. Right now, we are we are evaluating the impact of these cuts to determine um, how these cuts, these adjustments are are truly going to impact our colleges. And what it's going to mean is that any time funds are cut, it's imperative for each president to examine where these cuts can take place for the least negative impact. So it is up to the individual community college president? Yes. Each school may make different choices. They may. They may. It may impact each school differently. That is correct. Did you see these cuts coming? Uh, I did not, actually. Um, you know, we've experienced revenue problems all along, so I'm, I'm truly not surprised. 
And I think that as a state, we're, we're really going to have to address the problem in terms of uh, what do we do about revenue shortfalls and how do we encourage Mississippians to prepare for work, go to work, and specifically to shop and do business in the state of Mississippi. To make up revenue shortfalls that would benefit everyone who's been cut in this certainly, round of cuts. Certainly. Do you think it's likely that faculty will be affected or that students may see an increase in tuition? Where, where do you think these cuts might come? Well, well, I'll tell you, some considerations do include an impact on salaries. The community colleges invest uh, significant amounts of, of financial resources in salaries. And we do that because we offer specialized career and technical programs. They're very expensive to run. It's very difficult to recruit faculty because they make significantly more in the private sector. The impact could, Im- could affect uh, programs and services. Uh, we don't know. We could certainly see tuition go up as a result. You could see class sizes increase. And something that would be unprecedented, of course, would be if a community college, an open access institution, were to cap enrollment. Basically, serve as many as you can with the resources that you have, because resources are very limited. Because the tuition... Does it, I would think you'd want more students because you get more tuition, but is the tuition low enough that it's not compensating that, the programs being offered? That's right. That's right. Our mission has always been to keep the community college tuition very affordable for the student. That's very important to us. Over what time frame do these cuts need to be made? Because all of the schools are now in session. Well, these are... These are immediate. So we have already begun to examine these cuts and, and what this will mean in terms of dollars to the community college. Let me ask you real quickly about ITT Tech and uh, those campuses closing, including the one in Madison. Yes. Uh, we heard from someone at Holmes Community College like, you're welcome. We can help you come to us. Is that what you want? Because you just said you may have to limit enrollment. It, what do you think? Well, well, we do. We do want to help students. That is a priority. We want to help people get the education they need to go to work. And these students are displaced. So we are reaching out to students. We welcome them at the community college of their choice. And, and we would like for them to finish their education. And we'd love to have them. Andrea Mayfield, uh, Executive Director of the Community Colleges Boards. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us, Andrea. Thank you, Karen. Up next, ITT Tech closes all of its branches, as you just heard, including that one in Madison. We'll take a look at why. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're print impaired, MPB's radio reading service is here for you. Our dedicated team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you. For information and to see if you qualify, call us at 601-432-6301. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
ITT Technical Institute is no more in Mississippi and across the nation. The for-profit college closed its doors yesterday, citing a new Department of Education rule preventing the school from enrolling new students who use federal financial aid. The company says it simply can't continue to operate without that revenue stream. The shutdown will affect about 35,000 students and more than 8,000 employees. Whitney Barkley-Denny is Legislative Policy Counsel with the Center for Responsible Lending. She tells MPB's Sid Scott, ITT Tech has been on the Department of Education's radar for a few years for good reason. This has been coming for quite a while. The Department of Education first really started looking into ITT and some of their business practices uh, almost half a decade ago now. But the first time when we really saw that they might be in some trouble was in 2014 when the department asked them to post a letter of credit that would cover students in case the school closed. And then in August of this year, the department reacting to the ITT's accreditor, which is called ACES, basically telling ITT that they would likely no longer be accrediting them, had ITT post another letter of credit that increased the total responsibility of ITT to the Department of Education to about $247 million. They also prohibited ITT from enrolling any more students who use Title IV, and Title IV is is student loans and Pell Grants. So they were no longer able to enroll those students, and that accounted for about more than 60% of ITT's student population. Let me interrupt. What was the credit line for in case what happened, they would, that credit line would be called on to do what? Yes, yeah, so the credit line would be called on to reimburse basically the Department of Education for having to discharge and forgive um, so many of the student loans coming out of ITT. Because that's a common problem with a lot of for-profit colleges and their students? Exactly. Yeah, so for example, now that ITT is closed, um, for those students who were attending ITT at the time it was closed or who withdrew from the program within 120 days of closure, they are eligible for what's called a closed school discharge, which means that they can apply to the Department of Education to get those loans discharged because they were students at the time of the closure. You know, the letter of credit was supposed to help uh, the Department of Ed with those with those discharges as well as prove that, you know, ITT was financially solvent, which they were unable to do. Is this a sign of things to come for other for-profit colleges? Well, there are certainly other for-profit colleges who are under this intensified financial scrutiny from the Department of Education. But like I said, ITT um, was was coming for a long time. Uh, but there are other for-profit colleges on those heightened cash monitoring lists. Some community colleges are, are maybe stepping forward saying, we have short programs for students from these colleges. Have you heard any um, any action like that out there? What we've heard so far is that in most states, Uh, The community colleges at the moment are not accepting the credits from ITT. However, states can make the decision, and that would be a wonderful thing, to accept these credits from ITT students, and that way they don't have to start all over again or alternatively transfer their credits to another school with a poor reputation. Have semesters started at ITT Tech? Is it in the same? No, we're supposed to begin, um, I think, this week, and that's when they found out that, that they weren't going to be going forward any longer. So does that mean students are in the uh, position where they have received financial aid checks already, or were they waiting on those, or does it vary? They were waiting on those. Okay. So for students who this wasn't their first semester, um, you know, they would owe owe back that money. But the students who were newly enrolled had not received their financial aid yet. 
on the for-profit landscape from from your point of view at the Center for Responsible Lending, do you consider this a milestone, a minor victory, a a good sign of what might of what the future might hold? How are you looking at this? First and foremost, we're concerned about the students who are caught in the wake of this. I think there are about 170 of them in Mississippi, and as you noted, you know, more than 35,000 nationwide. And we want to make sure that those students both have access to school discharge for their loans um, and that the department is really aggressive in making sure that students are not penalized for having gone to ITT Tech. On the other hand, however, we do see it as a, as a positive development overall for making sure that schools that are taking advantage of students are no longer allowed to just operate with impunity. Whitney Barkley-Denny is the Legislative Policy Counsel for the Center for Responsible Lending. Whitney, thanks for taking time with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Sid. Up next, teaching teachers to teach civil rights in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The conventions are over. Candidates have been nominated with less than three months to Election Day. We don't know what's going to happen between now and then, but we will be here to help you understand it. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi teachers are getting tips on teaching civil rights history this Saturday and again in October. The William Winter Institute is hosting two workshops in Biloxi and Oxford to help educators incorporate tools into the classroom to help students learn about the civil rights era. Portia Ballard Espy is director of community building at the William Winter Institute. She tells MPB Sid Scott teaching civil rights history in schools is vital to moving the state forward. Initially, back in April, we we held um, an event called Civil Rights Literacy in the Past, Present, and Future uh, of the Common Good, and it was billed as a public forum. And, you know, during that session, we had teachers from, from all over who participated with us. And there were topics that dealt with uh, our human rights struggle and civil rights struggle as history and how to share that history in the classroom with their students. There were topics such as, uh, you know, we had different workshops, and uh, we had one workshop that was called No Citizen Shall Be Denied, and it was a workshop for Mississippi civics and United States history teachers. They would specifically go into uh, that which would be relevant for them to be able to share with their students. We also talked about topics such as integration in America, then, um, as well as now, the civil rights literacy and the common good, communities in, engaged, engaging in the past and um, the future for success. So we looked at history and how that history can be shared, uh, especially a history that may not actually be told in certain classrooms. We wanted to make sure that those teachers who wanted to, to do that had an opportunity to have resources as well as share with other teachers and hear from those who were experts in the field. What is the state of civil rights literacy in Mississippi schools? Well, and that's a good question, and I wish I could answer that. We know that there are uh, a lot of teachers who who do come to us, and and they are not teaching civil rights literacy in their classrooms. I don't, I can't give you the the statistics are the numbers behind that, but we want to be able to support them, give them the information that they need so they can uh, make sure that they are imparting upon their students the, the actual history of what happened in, in this state, uh, the civil rights history, just so that they will have that as part of their overall 
historical framework for learning about, you know, where we come from as a nation, but specifically here in, in Mississippi. <clears throat> One of the things I know that we try to do at the William Winter Institute, we work with communities and classrooms, and it's not really just in Mississippi. We go beyond, but we, we'd like to call, you know, consider ourselves supporting uh, a movement of racial equity and wholeness um, as a way of ending and transcending all division and discrimination based on difference, which is, you know, what the premise that the Institute was founded upon. So this, this workshop, this particular event that's coming up in September is an offshoot and a continuation of that which we held in April here in Jackson at the Convention Center. From the viewpoint of the William Winter Institute, the goal is racial reconciliation. How important is it for students and teachers to have a, a full deep and realistic view of the civil rights era in this state? Well, uh, we believe that in order for there to be the democracy, there has to be wisdom. And so this is a way of imparting that wisdom and helping to, to grow that democracy here within our state and, and beyond. And we're, we're so happy to, to be in partnership with NEH, uh, the National Endowment of the Humanities, uh, because that is their goal exactly as well. So uh, we're we're excellent partners in this because we both want to strengthen our country and promote excellence, and and we're doing that through the humanities uh, and conveying the lessons of history uh, to those in our state as well as beyond. Do you think there is a, a certain cultural thread out there that wants? this era not to be explored thoroughly? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there are uh, people out there that don't want this to be part of the classroom training, uh, but it, it is a reality, and uh, we, we do need to know it so that we don't repeat it. Portia Ballard Espy is Director of Community Building at the William Winter Institute. They are holding two seminars on the coast and in Oxford, Oxford yes, mm-hmm. called Moving Mississippi Up in Classrooms. I appreciate your joining us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Up next, working to make a difference as a teacher in the Mississippi Delta in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Well, the conventions are over. Candidates have been nominated. With less than three months to Election Day, we don't know what's going to happen between now and then. But whatever it is, we'll be here to help you understand it. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. The presidency is an office that suggests dignity and gravitas. The presidential campaign? Well... This has been a pretty dirty campaign. It's it's been a circus. It's been very entertaining, like a reality TV show almost. I'm Ari Shapiro. What voters make of one of the most unexpected campaigns of a lifetime on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Michael Copperman left Stanford University for the Mississippi Delta in 2001, a Teach for America participant determined to make a difference in one of the nation's poorest regions. What followed was a journey that changed him. In his new book, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta, Copperman recounts a day-to-day reality that he never could have imagined before he came to Mississippi. In today's book club, he tells us that one of the first things his students had to get used to was his appearance, which reflects his partial Asian heritage. They thought that I was uh, Jackie Chan. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, you know, the, the usual term that I was referred to, uh, especially among the kids I, not the kids I taught, but the kids in the school, as being a Chinaman. <laughs> and, you know, of course, that was simply their lack of any real exposure to, to Asian people in general. What grade did you teach? Um, I taught fourth grade. What did you learn about the kids right off the bat? Well, I think I immediately learned that they were going to be more than my match. <laughs> I also learned that I didn't necessarily know how to manage a classroom or how to teach a lesson or how to motivate children. Uh, the very first day, sort of finding this group full of kids looking at me at the front of the classroom was a bit of a shock. I had ideas about what that was going to be or mean, but I very quickly sort of realized that I had a lot on my plate. I think that uh, they were interested in my difference. I think that they were excited, as every child is this time of year, as they enter classrooms anew. Were all of the students African-American? Yeah. The public schools in the Delta are largely still segregated functionally. The first day of school was different than what you expected. How about the second day? How about the first, second, third month? Well, you, you know, you fall into a certain kind of rhythm very quickly. For me, that's a, it's a bit of a blur especially in that first year, I quickly came to realize that I wasn't prepared to get children to do the things that I had wanted them to do the way that I had anticipated. There were minor disasters, occasional riots, some days where I couldn't get anything almost done. Eventually, with time, I turned that around, but it took some learning on my feet. Could you share one of the minor disasters with us? <sighs> oh, let's see. Well, I mean, for example... On the first day of school, one young woman in my second year of teaching, at which point I thought that I was entirely savvy and prepared, she gets about a third of this memoir. But she uh, stood on her desk after having danced all the way around the classroom while rapping the lyrics to the song that goes to the window, to the wall, and stood on top of her desk and then proceeded to tell all of the students about how she was not going to listen to me until I finally walked her to the office. If you think about that as happening to somebody with a great deal of veteran experience, at least having gone through a year and imagining that I knew what I was doing. How did the year end? How did the first year end? Did the kids learn with you? Were they happy that you were their teacher? Was there a bond between you and your students? There absolutely was. And there was even through early parts of the first year, even when my classroom was not necessarily well-managed. I think that I connected to my students individually. And by the end of the first year, even by halfway through the first year, I would say that we were closer to being the sort of classroom that, that I had envisioned. You taught in 2001, 2002, and here we are in 2016. What took you so long to write the book? You know, I, I needed the sort of clarifying, I needed the clarifying lens of the years to really understand what the experience had meant and to understand the ways in which the children had stayed with me, stayed close to me. I think I say in the book at some point that I left a part of my heart in the Delta and that a part of me will always remain with those kids. Have you kept um, in touch with any of, of your previous students? I am in touch with many of them. Yeah. And I just met with a number of them when I was back in Mississippi two weeks ago. I went back to the town that I taught in and had lunch with a number of them. I went to the college campus to meet with a young woman 
who is important in the book and who appears in the first chapter, actually, and the last, and who was really important to me. And she's about to graduate from college. <laughs> this is her last semester. She's going to go on to a master's program in social work to help children like she was who have not necessarily been dealt an easy hand of things. That has so, been very gratifying yeah. for you. It's immensely gratifying. And I think in some ways I had had my doubts about what was going to happen to those kids. It turns out that, in fact, many of them have grown up to be fine young men and women. The book is called Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. and We've been speaking with its author, Michael Copperman. Michael, thank you so much for sharing some great stories with us. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Creature Comforts, MPB Season Pass, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you'd like. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. 